invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Our passage that was just read for us will be our sermon text for this morning. We continue to walk through the Gospel of Matthew, as we have for a few weeks now, and uh, we're soaking in the Sermon on the Mount. We turn our hearts and minds to the Lord's Prayer today to learn at the feet of Jesus what it is to commune with the living God. And so our hope is that we might be humbled in our shortcomings, and that we might be strengthened in His Word to grow in prayer, receiving our just reward in prayer, which is God Himself. To that end, will you join me with prayer? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such ways hear them and read and mark, learn and inwardly digest those words, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we might embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So in Matthew chapter 6, if you go down to verse 19, Jesus teaches this. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that in some ways encapsulates what Jesus is doing throughout chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel here. There's two ways to live, and those ways are based on who you serve. And also, do you serve self and others, or do you serve God? What path do you walk? Do you walk the way that is wide and easy, or the way that is narrow and difficult? Is the path you tread the way to life, or the way to death? Now, throughout this sermon, Jesus talks about rewards on and off, and he's not bashful about them, nor is he mercenary with them. The treasure above all treasures is God himself. Oh, other things will be given, of course, but the chief treasure, the chief reward is God. As we look to Jesus' prayer, we recognize that if, if, if God does answer this prayer, what does that mean? It means that heaven will converge with earth. See, prayer is an invitation for, for Jesus to enter in. That's what all of prayer aims at. Life together with Jesus, with the Father, and with the Spirit. Now, we don't, it doesn't happen often, but if you've been unfortunate enough to take a bite out of a plump, delicious red apple that's rotten on the inside, it's even worse if you find only half a worm sticking out. Unfortunate as that is, you're fortunate now to be able to taste Jesus' words here. See, chapter 6 is a contrast. It's all about those who live a vain religious life and those who live in the way of Jesus' kingdom life. Jesus is pointing out that there are those who have an outward appearance of a red delicious fruit, but inwardly there is rot. And Jesus is confronting us. He says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Perhaps the parallel would be in verse 1 of our passage. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. And Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Righteousness. Now that's a churchy word. It's a good one, right? It's a good churchy word. In this context, what Jesus is, is describing is a way of life. In his kingdom, if he's the king, 
How is he going to order life? Jesus is saying, using the word righteousness to say, this way that I'm describing of how we ought to live, that's what righteousness is. How we live day by day as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And how does Jesus describe these people? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for brokenness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we look at those people and we think, aren't these the very people that everybody in this world just walks over? Yeah. But Jesus says these are those who walk in the kingdom. As Pastor Dave preached on these passages last week, he encouraged us to pray these statements of being poor, of being meek, and seeing the rewards as well, for theirs is the kingdom. Jesus gets to the heart, he gets to our heart to show that we are not enough, that the law given is insufficient to lead us always unto God. What Jesus does in the beginning of chapter 6 is he outlines an old path, these old paths that apprentice followers of Jesus in the way to God. As Jesus would be preaching this sermon, those who are Jews and those who are non-Jews would recognize these three ways that Jesus gives us. They're, they're recognized across the board by all who would seek some kind of spirituality. And Jesus, for each of these three, he says that they're not optional. Jesus teaches, he says, when you give to the needy. And then Jesus says, when you pray. And he says, when you you fast, and every Jew and non-Jew in the audience is saying, yes, that's right. When we do these things, see, people are often looking for shortcuts or novelties in approaching God. And certainly, more disciplines than what Jesus lists here are available for our use. But why not immerse ourselves in these three paths, these three ways to be conformed to the image of the one we serve, the, the ways that lead to life in communion with God. And Jesus couches it all. He says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said earlier that our righteousness, our kingdom activity, it's got to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And everybody listening would be thinking, well, who could do that? I mean, these are the religious professionals. They wear their spirituality on their sleeve, and it is appealing, it is attractive. But nobody can measure up to that. Well, maybe Jesus isn't talking about you've got to do more things than them. Maybe that's not what he means by exceed. It seems rather that as Jesus opens up the chest cavity and examines our heart, he looks at one's motive or aim in their life of prayer. So we're not going to look today at giving to the, the poor. We're not going to look at fasting, but we're going to look at prayer. And in it, he models what he means for those other two paths, these old ways, these old paths. So before we dive in, as we go to examine prayer, I'm glad for moments where we get to examine things like prayer. And I just want to acknowledge up front that prayer is difficult. If you're like me, there's often a lethargy when it comes to trying to pray. There's often unbelief in me. For some of us, it feels more like we're talking to air than to a person. And so we begin there. And we come to the feet of Jesus. And that's, what this, that's why he's preaching this. 
Come, learn from me. And so we come to learn. We know prayer's necessity. We hope in prayer's efficacy. We long for prayer's intimacy. So we come to learn together. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Jesus says, but when you pray. So he starts by forbidding. When you pray, don't pray this way. It doesn't take a, a large or a great imagination to picture those pious people who like to, to pray loudly before others. Words heaped upon words to affect response. Praying maybe not necessarily to God or of God, but to man perhaps. Have we been involved with prayers like that? Have we prayed prayers like that? So conscious of our words that they would hit the right notes for the people to hear. Now what's the problem with this. Jesus says, lest you be one of those hypocrites whose outward piety betrays their inner rot. Look out. What's the problem with this? Well, a problem, Jesus says, I, I, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So those who stand on street corners and pray very long and loud prayers, what is their reward? What do they receive? Well, it's those fleeting pyrotechnic pleasures of others being pleased with you. That feels good, doesn't it? You perform something, you do something, and there's, it draws forth an ooh or an ah from somebody. Your piety can draw response from people. And these oohs and ahs from others, it's as addictive as caffeine and yet as empty as sugar. It will be rewarded, but your only reward will be the ooh and the ah. So Jesus says, rather than pray that way, Pray privately, he says in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees or who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The person that you are in private is the person you really are. A person is known by their fruit, and even bad plants can appear healthy, but their fruit gives them away. Note that Jesus addresses the heart before he addresses the how. He'll get to the framework and the how of how we ought to pray. But here he's addressing the heart of the prayer. Praying in private is what he commends here. We recognize that's not the only way that we pray, but it is an important way that we pray. Our private thoughts, our words, our actions reveal to us the inner life, the core of the fruit. No show, no pretense, our naked selves before a holy and righteous way. To not pray privately, but then to love praying publicly is a warning for the heart, a potential hypocrisy. And Jesus simply says, beware of this in yourselves. A brotherly warning for our good. Jesus is revealing our heart. And he moves on to reveal our heart in a different way, verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, he says it again, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It's another, when you pray, don't do it this way. What's the way we're not supposed to do? Well, 
Jesus is getting at our view of God here, isn't he? Is God a God who can be manipulated, can be coerced into activities which we imagine to be good? Maybe if we utter the right phrases, the right amount of words, maybe if we're more passionate and heaping up word upon word, phrase upon phrase, you know, like those pagans. So if prayer is about building a community, a relationship, this approach to prayer would be like trying to be best friends with those talking heads on CNN and Fox News. Words upon words, phrases upon phrases, they have no concern for who we are as individuals. And yet this is often how we approach God, words upon words, phrase upon phrase, with no regard to the person, just the possible effect. As Luther said about prayer, he says, in prayer we are actually instructing ourselves more than we are instructing God who knows what we need before we ask. That's what Jesus' reason for this is. Don't be like them, he says, for your Father knows what you need before you pray. It's a prayer. It's, it's prayers about building relationship with God. The problem Jesus addresses here is, is using prayer to elevate man above God. See, the first example that he gives with those hypocrites, uh, they, he, those, those are people that are, are seeking to put uh, others' approval above God's. And this second one seems to put the self on the throne, trying to manipulate God as a servant. But Jesus says, see, you've got it the wrong way around. Address your heart. You can pray to God. Can you pray to God in private? Can you pray with God alone? That, that closet that Jesus commends here, that's that, that holy solitude, it's the gymnasium of piety. We rise from the waters of baptism. We depart the promised land to enter the wilderness where we are tested and tried as we approach the sermon from Jesus' lips. But now from the heart, Jesus turns to address the how of prayer. That's so helpful, isn't it? We need all the help we can get learning to pray. So he begins, pray then like this, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the first half of the prayer, it has everything to do with God, doesn't it? Everything about the first half of this prayer points to God. Adam was called son of God. Do you remember that? King David was called son of God. When at the Exodus, God calls out to his people saying, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So how does Jesus address God as the son of God? Our father. Now, perhaps we're numbed to calling upon God this way. If we're well versed in church and in prayer, we say this prayer, we call upon God this way. And perhaps for some of us, the image of father is marred by a treasonous kind of fatherhood. But if we pause even for a moment to reflect God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he invites us into his presence as sons and daughters speaking with their Father. In beginning prayer, the framework that Jesus gives to build relationship with God 
begins with God. Praying in His name, His person, His entire being. And we are to hollow His name. That is to acknowledge Him as holy, as transcendent, as completely other. We pray to the one who inhabits heaven and yet invites us in to call Him Abba, to call Him Father. May your name be made much of in our lives and in the world around us. Father. These are orienting words, aren't they? They help us to gaze Godward. They help us to aim our words at glory, at good that is outside of us, that's out apart from us. In Jesus, heaven converges with earth, and in his ascension, earth ascends to heaven. See, we pray Jesus' incarnation whenever we pray this prayer. It's in effect we say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Father, we desire your will. Conform our will to yours. This is the petition in which all our petitions are, are couched. Specifics will be prayed, after which we echo, Yet, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It's a big prayer. It's a strong prayer. It's a transformational prayer. This is Jesus' framework. For when we pray, pray this way. The framework begins with God's name, and it builds upon that name before turning our attention and God's eye towards our needs, which he comes to in the next section, verses 11 and following. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's, it's so humble. Remember manna, daily bread, manna prayer. It's enough for the day, lest in our abundance we depend no more on you. Or in our poverty, we turn to others. Give us enough for the day. Forgive us our debts, forgive us our sin, forgive us our trespasses. See, each gospel has a different word for what God is supposed to forgive here. Matthew chooses debt, and it's good. Whenever we sin or trespass against God, there is a debt incurred. Debt images what is owed in our rebellion. The word sin encompasses a life that misses the mark. If we're to use the word trespasses, it acknowledges that we've gone beyond the bounds God has established. When we trespass, we try to reorder God's good order in our own image. See, Christian traditions tend to favor one of these interpretations over the other. And so we pray with our friends this prayer, and it gets awkward at moments because we say different things at times. And that's okay as long as we pray it all together. All that to say there is no wrong phrase, sins, trespasses, or debts. They all get at different nuances of, our, of the fall and how it works out in our own lives. But Matthew expands on this a little bit more when he gets to verse 14, or Jesus does in Matthew's gospel here. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus uses the word debts in the prayer, and then to, to summarize the prayer, he talks about trespasses, so you can't go wrong. Jesus' summary of actions revealing the heart here. Look, he says in this part here, if you've no mercy to give others, are you really in a place? Are you able to receive mercy 
from God. Surely one who has been shown mercy will show mercy for others. There's not a mechanism of here of how forgiveness works. It's an examination. If you receive forgiveness, surely you will forgive others. If you don't forgive others, what does that say? Who are you? Are you a child of the kingdom? It's Jesus' parable of that servant in debt, which would take many, many lives over to pay, who then grabs a friend in debt, a, low, a small debt by the, 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 the throat and threatens. Jesus compares our trespasses to debt, to overstepping God's boundaries. What we pray here is a form of judgment upon ourselves. In the way we forgive others, Lord, forgive us. At Trinity, we've been praying the word trespasses here. When we understand our rebellion, our fall, we accrue debt before God. We acknowledge our waywardness of sins. And we pray every week, forgive us as we forgive others. And the last petition here, we're asking God, lead us, our Heavenly Father. Lead us to those green pastures to those still waters, out of the valley of the shadow of death, out of the wilderness, away from temptation. We pray in these petitions God's guidance, God's protection, God's provision. Provide us our daily bread, our Father. Protect our wearied souls, our Father. And guide our steps in the way of peace, Father. The framework is given. The scaffolding for spiritual rebar that strengthens the building of a relationship with God is given us in prayer here. But again, like me, at least I imagine, like me, you feel more often that prayer is not much more than speaking to air at times. But Jesus comes still saying, when you pray, and so we pray. Or like me, it's difficult to believe that prayer has any effect. And so Jesus invites us, your Father, your Heavenly Father, He knows what you need before you ask. Go ahead, ask, seek, keep knocking. Why? Because He's your Father. And He delights to give gifts, not grudges. He gives bread, not stones. He gives food, not serpents. See, Jesus prayed, and he instructs us in the way. And these aren't magical words, but they are Jesus' words. So we pray him. Have you tried it? Maybe even this week. Try it every day, morning, noon, night. Simply pray the Lord's prayer. No, we're not seeking to manipulate God, but we're inviting, we're entering in our Heavenly Father. Perhaps we could just focus on the different petitions, one at a time each day, praying them over, expanding on them, praying God's name, seeking His glory in prayer, focusing the next day on another petition, our daily sustenance. Help us to learn how to forgive, protect us against temptation and the evil one. See, Jesus came teaching the way to God. And he gave us these old paths of giving, of prayer, of fasting. And he invites us in. 
This is the road to formation. Formation in the image of Jesus Christ. He is the answer to this prayer. He is the aim and he is our reward. So come to Jesus this morning and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word, that you have given us your Son who is the living word. Teach us, Lord, to pray that we might give honor and glory to you, that we ourselves might be made like Christ, renewed in his image from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.